Right. So let's uh, worship and adore him uh, and pray, and then we're going to read the scriptures together. Let's come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we can live uh, our whole lives worshiping you, serving you, uh, living for you. We thank you that there's no part of our lives that is too small, too momentary, too random, that you can't be worshipped in it. Only, only the sin doesn't worship you, can't be used for you, can't be offered to you. And thank you, Lord, that we can offer the whole of our lives to you because Jesus' whole life was an offering to you. And we are in him. Thank you that there was not a moment, a second of his life that was not devoted to you, an offering to you. Thank you that we can be living sacrifices. And thank you that there is greater joy in this than in living for ourselves, a more rich and deep satisfaction. So, Lord, as as we come to you today and as we pray, as we pray, Heavenly Father, for this world that we live in, and with some some, uh, huge things going on in the world that could be so, so much better. And, Lord, though there are huge injustices in this world, and though there are so many people living under oppression. Lord, just this morning, we we want to pray uh, for Ellen and for ourselves here and wherever you take us through a normal week. And Lord, though there are big things, we want to pray also this morning for uh, ourselves as, as small players in this world, as those with just a walk on part in terms of all the world's power and everything else. Lord, we pray for the people that we think we would normally meet in this coming week. So we want to lift before you, Lord, the people that we work with. We want to pray right now, Father, for the people that we'll meet in other ways. We pray, Lord, for family members that we'll maybe meet up with this week. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to you already being in their lives. For you know them. You know everything about them. 
Before a word is on their lips, you know it. You know their worries and their fears and their regrets. You know, Lord, whether they've no place in their life for you or not. Or whether they believe you even exist or not. We know, Lord, that you care for them because you made them. We pray for the people who'll serve us in the shops that we'll visit this week. We pray that we might not be part of them having a bad day. We pray that people that we just meet randomly like that might see Jesus, even, even if it's just in the way we smile the way we respond to them. Lord, we know they might not know it's Jesus. We pray they'll see it just the same. We ask, Heavenly Father, that as well as you working in huge ways in this world uh, with the huge levers of power that exist, we pray that you would work through us. Thank you that you, you dignify each of us with responsibility. That, that we ought not to defer onto other people and give away all the time and duck and, duck and dodge and evade. Thank you that it is our dignity as your creation made in the image of God to carry responsibility and carry it well. Forgive us, Lord, if we, if we have just deferred responsibility for the salvation of souls in Ellen and around onto somebody else. Well, somebody will do it. But we know, Lord, that just always thinking somebody will do it guarantees that nobody will. Use us, Lord, we pray. Hear us as we pray for small things to have big impact. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we're going to read together. It's just a short passage, um, the end of Matthew's Gospel, um, often called the Great Commission. Um, and your Bible may have this little bit uh, with a kind of a subtitle, the Great Commission. The subtitles weren't written in the original, of course, um, but uh, sometimes they help us. So Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. So turn to or swipe to or open or switch on your Bible, whatever you do with it. And uh, I'm going to read Matthew 28, 16 to the end. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, uh, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, 
but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's not a long passage, is it? Uh, it's a short one. So um, we're going to read it again because it's like watching a good movie. You always see something in it that you didn't see the first time. Uh, so we're just going to read it again and focus on each of the words, focus on the detail of what Jesus is saying, which we'll come to in a, a few moments. There we go again. Then the 11 disciples, well, what does then mean? What's that, what's that going to tell us? Okay, keep asking the questions. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, why is there therefore there? When you see a therefore, ask yourself what it's there for. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So it's a, it's a fairly familiar passage to a lot of people, and it often gets um, uh, used in the context of missions when what we mean by mission is something that happens in another country. Uh, but funnily enough, Jesus was not saying this to people who were going to go and get on Expedia and book themselves a flight to another country. Uh, so I want us to understand what uh, the Great Commission has to say to those of us who would not call ourselves, quotes, missionaries, i.e. people who go to another country. Um, and I want us to, to see what the passage is saying and what it isn't saying and, and how it can help us in the coming week and how it can help um, Ellen Baptist Church to be the church uh, in Jesus' terms. So, um, first of all, when, when we're approaching a passage of the Bible, particularly when it's a well-known one and we get familiar with it and kind of gloss over it, um, it's, the best thing to do is just absolutely pummel the passage with questions. So I, I don't know about you, but the more I go on in the Christian life, I think I probably have more questions than answers. And that's not a bad thing. Um, it shows that you're wanting to keep learning and you're keeping thinking and all that kind of stuff, and you haven't just settled into like, bleh, or whatever. Um, I don't know how you'd spell that, but anyway. Ask the questions. So here are some questions. Who says it, and this is always a good question when you're looking at some dialogue in the Bible. Who says it, and when, to whom, and then, what did they say? So every bit of dialogue in the Bible is framed, and, and the framing of a bit of conversation or a teaching or a, 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 a bit of dialogue or whatever, the framing of it is is always in the Gospels, the Gospel writers really seem to focus on this a lot, the, the framing of it is crucial. 
So you know that the, the frame around a picture can alter the way you see the picture. Um, the, the context, the setting, uh, the way it's all set up, how you frame it, um, it's the same with problem solving in, in, in work, home, family life, whatever. How you frame the problem affects how you then sort of approach and reach a solution. So what's the frame? Well, the frame has to do with who's speaking it and when and to whom. And Matthew is, is, is um, reporting something, the timing of which is crucial. Now, Jesus has already given commissions. So before the crucifixion, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, he said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, before, again, before the, 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 the crucifixion, he says to the disciples, um, you're going to go and preach the Gospel in my name, go and preach repentance in my name for the forgiveness of sins to all nations, and then the end will come. So when Luke kicks off in Acts, and at that point, Jesus says, back in Luke 24, um, but wait till the Spirit comes on you for this, the power from on high. You know, don't try this at home. You know, it's a great idea. You'll get enthusiastic, but don't, for any sake, try this until you've got power from on high because human carnal power will just make a complete pig's ear of it and it'll crush you. So then in Acts chapter 1, um, when right at the very beginning... The Holy Jesus says, when the Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, including Ellen. And then in Acts chapter 2, we get Pentecost. That's fulfilling. That's Luke saying, you know, this is how it panned out. What I, what I reported in Luke 24, although we didn't have chapter numbers, uh, this is how it worked out at the beginning of Acts. Well, Matthew has a commission as well. Um, and... We call it the Great Commission, but it's not the only one. Um, and it's, his is framed quite differently. Um, so he's picking up on something Jesus said, and the timing of it gives it its content. So when, is it, when has it happened? Well, lo and behold, the beginning of chapter 28, um, subheading in my NIV is the resurrection. Okay, that's a subtle clue. These words are being spoken after the resurrection, that is, after death has been conquered. After Jesus Christ has, by the resurrection, been proved by the Father to everyone, to all creation, to all the heavenly beings, to all the spiritual opponents and all the rest of it that he has, that in actual fact Jesus Christ is his Son, and that his sacrifice for sin was acceptable. That is that the work of the cross is going to make a cosmic difference. That his offering of himself upon the cross was accepted by the Father as demonstrated in the resurrection. So the resurrection is not just a demonstration of God's power, though it is that. It is also a demonstration of the all-time effectiveness of what Jesus did that once, bearing all our sin. So the resurrection is, if you like, the absolute seal of God the Father on the saving power of Christ. He is the Savior. 
And it is his, the start of his exaltation because, of course, the resurrection led to his ascension to the throne. So, as Matthew frames this great commission, he's framing it in the context of God's victory over death, of the absolute seal of God upon the saving work of Jesus, on a a fundamental shift in everything. Nothing is the same after the resurrection because of the resurrection. So when we read the word, then the 11 disciples, that word then just is a little, should be a little trigger in our minds. Well, hang on a minute. What's just happened? And what's the significance of what's just happened for what's about to happen and what he's about to say? It's not a mere coincidence that Jesus said what he said when he said it. And Matthew's framed it like that. So then, of course, who is it who's speaking? Well, we don't have to work that out very much because he says it himself. Subtle clue. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So who speaks? It is the king of the universe. It is the one who holds all authority and power. Um, just get mirrors so you can see what's going on. Um, now, you can have the authority uh, to stand in the middle of uh, the Aberdeen bypass and if you're a policeman and do that and get people to slow down and stop. But you might not actually have the power to do that. You might just get mowed down by the next car that comes along or the next truck. You can have the authority, but you don't necessarily have the power. You might, on the other hand, have the power to go and open all the prison cells and let all the prisoners walk out of prison. But even a prison officer doesn't have the authority to do that. Might have the power, the keys, press the buttons, know the codes, but you don't have the authority to do it. Now, Jesus, after the resurrection, clearly has the power over death and its grip on people. He has the power over the thing which has dominated human existence since the fall back in Genesis 3. But he's also been given authority. Which means that what he says goes. What he says happens. It means that he rules. And he doesn't just rule in heaven, but he rules over all heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, um, we might think when he says heaven and earth, we might think that's two places. But there is a way of talking in um, the Old Testament, and it carries on in the New Testament, in the more sort of Jewish-minded ways of writing in the New Testament. Um, it flows in the language that when 
Two places that are far apart are mentioned. It's, it's done so like to include everything in between as well. So it's a bit like bookends. You've got a left bookend and a right bookend, but it's, they're holding everything up in between. Now, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth, that's not a way of saying, I've got all authority in two places. That's Jesus saying, I've got authority like everywhere, over everything. All authority in the whole universe, over anything that's in it. So, this is after the resurrection. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords speaking. This is the person who is not made Lord by anybody. He is Lord. The most we do is recognize it. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord, de facto. This is the person who controls the universe, if you like. Way forward in Revelation, there's a funny bit in uh, sort of chapters four and five, where we're let into the kind of the control room of the universe. And there's this problem that John has. There's a scroll and nobody's there to open it. Chapter four. And then comes the lamb who was slain. And he opens the scroll. Now, what that's about in, in the imagery of Revelation is that the scroll is God writing out the story of the world, of God writing history before it's ever happened. This is the scroll of God's will. And it's sealed. And in the imagery that will be very familiar to the people who are first reading Revelation, because there's a whole lot of other literature around that carry this imagery, it's just all, you know, it, it all makes sense to them immediately. When something is sealed, then it's come from somebody of great authority. This has seven seals to it. The only person, because John is lamenting, nobody was found who could open this. Nobody was found with, with the authority to open seven seals, for goodness sake, from, from, from the ruler of all things. And then along comes the lamb who was slain. Along comes the lion of Judah. Along comes Jesus. Risen, ascended, glorified, enthroned. And he has the authority to open it and just roll out the history of the cosmos. Roll out all human history. So this is the when and the who. Now, before we go on to the what... Let's just take note briefly of who it is he's speaking to. The 11 disciples. Some worship, some don't. Some doubt. Doubt will mess up your trust. It'll mess up your worship as well. These disciples are full of doubts. Some of them have failed him and failed him desperately. One of them has denied him three times. They have been devastated by his death and not remotely even recalling, let alone finding solace in the fact that he said he would rise from the dead. 
They are weak, weak vessels. The 11 disciples are a mess. Some of them individually and collectively. If you wanted a group of guys to change the world, you would not go and choose this 11. When Paul, who wasn't amongst this group, of course, but got added to them later, when Paul writes about what they're like as they go around sharing the good news of Jesus, he says this, this good news of Jesus is it's like a gem, it's a jewel, it's brilliant, but we carry it in jars of clay. And jars of clay were as common as muck. They were the everyday utility thing. They were more common and more throwaway than jam jars. And they're fragile. There are very few jars of clay that archaeologists find as jars of clay. Most of them are just shattered shards of clay. Jars of clay are fragile. They're pretty weak. You, you might be able to push them hard that way. And if they're round, they might have a lot of hoop strength. But give them a whack and they shatter. So this is being given to people who, strangely enough, are a bit like you and me. Uh, None of them would have won Britain's Got Talent. None of them would have become elected representatives, if that's a good thing, (laughs) at the moment. Um, None of them would have been immediately, oh, yeah, future CEO of the company. Um, None of them have got university degrees. None of them are... Great. So to these frail, failed, weak people, Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth, has conquered death, is the guaranteed savior of anyone who comes to him, gives, the, gives these words. So what is it he says? Well, what's what's the first word that Jesus uses? No, not go. What's the first word that Jesus uses? Therefore. So, when you see a therefore, like I said earlier on, you ask yourself, what's it there for? Well, so it's like saying, look, because I am the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, because all authority has been given to me, that's why, you know, therefore... Now, here's the other thing. What, imagine that you're writing a gospel. You know? So we've got the gospel according to Malcolm coming up. Um, so you imagine you're writing the gospel. And the Spirit's sort of whispering away in your, in your right logo, telling you what to write, and giving impulses in your heart and your mind, and pulling words in and all that kind of stuff. And the Spirit's working away, and you're like, like mad, and you're writing your gospel, and it's great. And you get, you get to the end of verse 18, whoa, that's a cracking verse like that, that one, that's a good one. And then, and then you start off, oh, therefore, okay, therefore, right. And then the Spirit says, okay, you go and finish the sentence. What would you put? 
I don't know if I would in a million years have written what comes next. I would not have drawn the conclusion from verse 18 that Jesus draws and gives us in verse 19. So the Great Commission is the conclusion that Jesus drew from the fact that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So because he has all authority in heaven and earth, because he has been raised from the dead and has conquered the thing that grips with fear just about everybody you know, and you're going to meet this week. Just because Jesus has, has victory over the thing that people will still regard as the last enemy and the worst thing that can possibly happen and the ultimate bad thing, because Jesus has all authority over it, and that is a demonstration and a vindication of his saving work, a completion of his saving work on the cross. Therefore what? Therefore sit there and feel blessed to bits? No. Therefore, go and make other followers. So it is this, this commission, this thing that is for all disciples at all times. We know it is because he says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. So we know that it's not, he wasn't just speaking to those who were there listening to him at the time because they're gonna, this is going to be for the end of the age thing. So that was, that was obviously a bit longer than they were going to last. It is the consequence of him being Lord. So we sing things about Jesus being Lord. We sing things about Jesus being a wonderful saviour. We sing in rejoicing about the, the resurrection and the conquering of death. But if we are keeping that to ourselves, if our goal in understanding all those things and in feeling all those things is just a feeling for ourselves, then we're missing the point that Jesus drew from it all. We're missing the conclusion that Jesus made, which is, all this is true, so get out there and make disciples. So as, as one um, archbishop once put it, um, the church is the only organization that exists for its non-members. Or as Spurgeon put it, quote a Baptist, not an Anglican, ah, as Spurgeon put it, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. One uh, South African theologian, David Bosch, wrote a brilliant book uh, called Transforming Mission. And he was really the, 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 he was the, the theological brains behind uh, all, that, all the mission of God stuff that is, that is fairly commonplace now. Uh, he was tragically killed in a car accident. Um, and uh, he wrote in this book, Transforming Mission, he wrote, mission is not an activity of the church, but an attribute of God. There is church because there is mission, not vice versa. And, and that point is right at the center of why we've got the word therefore in verse 19. God is a missionary God. God is a missionary God. And that's why you're here today. 
That's why there's Ellen Baptist Church. That's why you can look ahead and think about the new building. That's why you are here because of mission. God's mission. So we make mission an activity of the church, but it is, as David Bosch said, an attribute of God. So when Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, when Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, what, what is the impulse in Jesus' heart about that? It's, let's spread it. <laughs> let's spread it. In fact, you're going to be spreading it. I'll be with you, but you'll be spreading it. That's what you're there for now. And so he makes his resurrection authority the basis for our mission. That is what we are here for because that's what the person with all authority in heaven and earth tells us to do. So because he has all authority in heaven and earth and we know that and we rejoice in it and trust it, we don't get to compartmentalize this disciple-making into one little box that's only, only the people who are called missionaries can open it. It doesn't say, therefore, uh, some people in the future who are going to go to other countries should do this. The rest of you just go and have a good time. It is for all his people, for all time, simply because he says so. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So Jesus commissions you as a disciple maker. Jesus has commissioned each of you as a disciple maker, just like he was. So all he's asking the disciples to do, all he's telling them to do, is what he's already done with them. I've done it with you. I've shown you how you do it. Off you go. You do it yourself. It's called experiential learning nowadays. You put people through the experience, explain it to them, then get off and do it. So that's a commission that is on you collectively, but on each of you and on me as well. I don't get to put this onto other people so that it's not on me. Because Jesus has given it to me and he's got all authority in heaven and on earth. And if I believe that, I better follow it. So what is the content? Very briefly. First of all, um, our English translations have mucked up what Jesus said big time. Um, and I would not be a Bible translator for all the tea in China. Because um, you've got to make a call on, 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 on words in another language and putting them into your own language and all that kind of thing. And, and there's always going to be debate. But um, just bear with me on this whilst I explain it. There is only one verb in what Jesus said. Now, we've got the English here, so, you know, eyes down, look in. Verse 19. It's a big old call, you know. Eyes down, look in. Yeah. Legs 11, verse 19. Um, therefore, now what's, what's, what's that first word that we've got after the word therefore? Somebody said it earlier. It is the word? All right. So here we go. It's like being back at school now. Is that uh, an adjective or a noun or an adverb or a verb? Yeah. 
Verb. In English, that's a verb. Yeah? Good. Wrong. <laughs> In Greek, Jesus did not say, go. Which is where we've gone wrong. Because we think it's for people who have to go somewhere else. And Jesus is primarily telling us to go somewhere else. The one verb in the whole of what it says here in the Great Commission is the make disciples. One word in the Greek, discipling. Go, so it's disciple. That's the verb. And that verb, disciple, means follow as, as, as I have walked and lived in a certain way and you've followed it because discipling is primarily an imitative, mimicking, social learning thing. Um, to be a disciple meant that you went and stayed with the rabbi and you watched the rabbi, you ate like the rabbi, you thought like the rabbi, you walked like the rabbi, you, you picked it all up so that people could watch you and they know exactly which rabbi you were a disciple of by the way you did stuff. You didn't have to tell them. It would just be obvious from all your behaviors. So he's saying, that's what I want you to do. I want you to go and so live in this world that it will be obvious from your behaviors who it is you follow, and that others will follow, will follow with you. So you make followers in just exactly the same way that Jesus did. That's the only verb. So what we've got is that one verb surrounded by, um, the boffins would say, participles, in words. So um, I... I found the ring by searching. Well, searching there is a participle. It's, it's a way of telling you how you did something. So Jesus gives us one verb, one imperative, one command, disciple. And three ways in which we do that. So the first one, which we in English have go as an imperative and as a command, isn't, isn't a verb, it's this disciple, it's this participle rather, and it's saying, as you go, as you go, or going around. What is he talking about? Well, if you go around in an African country, I would apply to going to Africa, but just put your hand up, roughly speaking, if, if you're going around this week, is going to be in Ellen. Yes? Yeah? Okay. Uh, any of you going to be going around in Aberdeen? Some of you will. Uh, any of you going to be going around anywhere else? Marvellous. Any of you going to be going around in Kenya? Not a lot. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, as you go, just as you go through life, as you go through a day. Live in such a way that people will begin to follow me. You're a walking, talking, shopping, working, visual aid for Jesus as you go. So that means instead of Jesus talking about a peculiar activity for a peculiar few, Jesus is talking about your everyday life your everyday life. So I were praying earlier on 
or the folk that you'll just meet up with and be with as you go through the week, as you go through a day. And the discipling thing has two parts of it because these are the two part- participles. Baptizing them into is a better translation. Some of you got that in the, in the, in the footnote at the bottom of the page if you've got a book. Um, therefore, go make disciples of all, or therefore, as you go, disciple, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, um, there are references to baptism, but this isn't a a reference to a baptism because we normally do like you get converted, then you get baptized, and you know then you get the rest of your life. So then you start doing discipleship kind of thing, which is which is not what Jesus is talking about at all. Discipling includes leading people to Him because that phrase "baptizing into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit" is not baptizing in, but baptizing into. Two different words for in in the Greek. This is the into word, ace rather than n, if, if you want. It, it's a way of bringing somebody into a community. So the, the, the first stage of discipling people is just bringing them into this relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Just bring them into the community of the Trinity, which is what every Christian is part of. You bring them into the life of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So if you're a Christian, you have a shared life. God is sharing his life with you. He isn't sharing his deity with you, but he's sharing his life with you. He's brought you in. Sin kept you out. He's brought you in to fellowship with himself, communion with himself. That's the first stage of discipling, bringing people in, we might say converted, getting saved, call it what you will, but that's what Jesus took and called it. And then we teach people to obey what Jesus has done. That doesn't mean we all become preachers. In fact, many preachers are not good at teaching people to obey. They're good at teaching what was said, but that's different. He didn't say teaching them all I have commanded you. He said teaching them to obey, which is much more nitty-gritty, hands-on, you know, doing life with people. Which we can all do. So what is it that flows from the resurrection from the dead of the one and only saviour of the world who has all authority in heaven and on earth? What is it that flows from that? It's, it's that as we... Just go about our stuff. So we just get on with life. We do it in a way that is utterly transformed from what it was like before we met Jesus. Utterly transformed. Now we're living with a purpose. And the purpose is not get a job, keep your job, get a pension, retire, die. The purpose is not Feather your nest, make it comfortable, have a good time, and die. The purpose is not live for yourself, live for your kids, and die. The purpose is not actually you or me. The purpose is disciple other people. You don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to go to another country. You just have to get out of bed in the morning and do stuff. (laughs) Really, really easy. 
in that sense. But to do stuff in such a way that anybody interacting with you for even a moment is interacting with somebody who is walking like Jesus walked, talking like Jesus talked, relating like Jesus relating, lived like Jesus lived before the Father. And you might not feel that that's any different from all the other people they relate to. But believe you me, they will. So I spent a while stacking shelves in Marks and Spencers, and then I got, uh, I got a break, uh, and I got to work in the in-store bakery and the deli bar. This is in Union, in um, St. Nicholas Centre, for a while. And then I was, for a while, I was working on the tills in Argos. I'm going to tell you the difference between meeting a Christian and meeting many, many other people is like chalk and cheese. The difference between helping somebody find their beef gravy who smiles and is kind and understands and isn't grumpy or demanding or complaining it's like it's chalk and cheese. You need only two of those in a day and get through all the rest. Well, where is it now? Where have you moved it to? Why is it, why is it only beef gravy? What do, you, do you not have venison gravy? No, we don't have venison gravy. I'm very sorry. It's not my fault. Personally, I don't actually decide what markets sell. I just, you know, like... Mm. You might not think you're making much difference. You might think you're just going through a day. But you cannot imagine the difference it makes to other people if you go through a, way like, through a day like Jesus. And then you look for an opportunity to say why you are the way you are. And you maybe got a copy of Try Praying or something like that. And you, you maybe invite them along on Sunday or some other event that, that you're doing. Or maybe just talk to them about what God's done for you. Maybe just tell them why you're not a grumpy, complaining customer or whatever it happens to be. Tell them why you don't avoid eye contact like it's going to give you a terrible disease. You say, well, God's made a big difference in my life. I say, I'm, I'm trying to follow Jesus. I found that what, what, what he says and everything just makes such a difference in my life. You, don't have, to, you have to give them you know, a theology exercise. You don't have to take them from... Step one to step ten in one jump, you know, one step at a time usually is better. You don't have to convert them right there on the bus that morning into work. You just say a bit, and then another bit, and another bit. As you go, make disciples. That's what we're here for. We're not here just to worship because we'll do that better in heaven so God could take us straight there and it'd be cracking then, wouldn't it be brilliant? And we're not here just to get more holy and get more sanctified because that'll happen like that in heaven. It'll be done. But there's something that can't happen in heaven. It's too late then. That's what we're here for. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that this is for all of us. And this is a wonderful, life-transforming commission you've given for absolutely every one of us. 
Thank you that you, you take our lives onto a completely different level of purpose in, in these few verses. Thank you that you transform totally the reason why we get up in the morning. Jesus, you are wonderful and glorious, and we acknowledge you do have all authority, and we acknowledge you have authority over us. And it is a good authority, a joyous one. So we pray you'd help us as we go, consciously, deliberately, with a desire in our hearts to make disciples, just like you've done with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing in closing. Um, I, the Lord of sea and sky. We missed out a song earlier. Um, that was entirely accidental. Thank you.